the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. Under orders from the Secretary of Defense, women can now try out for all combat jobs in all services. We turn now to what some military officials call an enduring and pressing emergency, the rise in veteran suicides. But more than a dozen current and former cadets have told CBS News they reported their sexual assaults to the Air Force Academy only to then experience retaliation. Don't ask, don't tell is history, but there's still plenty to talk about. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pereso. Today, we're excited to bring you an interview on the topic of women's roles in the military. Our guest is Lila Koestani, a U.S. Navy veteran. She served as a surface warfare officer aboard the USS Essex and then transferred into the intelligence community working as a Navy Intel officer. During her time with the intelligence community, Lila worked with Special Operations Forces. After leaving the Navy, Lila founded an organization called Promote, which seeks to improve work environments within Special Operations units, providing tailored training on topics such as mitigating bias, mentorship sponsorship, work-life integration, and creating an inclusive culture. She's also a member of the Truman National Security Project's Defense Council, a lecturer at Georgetown, director of government programs at the Cultural Intelligence Center, and a member of Virginia's Board of Veterans Services. We talked with Lila about a wide range of subjects, including women in the military, media portrayals of women service members and their implications for the civil-military divide, and how men can be better allies for women who serve. But before getting into those, we wanted to ask Lila about her personal story, her family background, and why she chose to join the Navy. Here's the interview. Lila, thanks so much for coming on today to thank you for your service. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. So before we get into your military career and some of your current work, we're wondering uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your family background. I know you immigrated from Afghanistan at a pretty young age. Yeah, so my father was enlisted in the 1970s in the Afghan National Army And when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, he spoke out against the occupation and was imprisoned for a while. And eventually we applied for political asylum in the U.S. So I spent a little bit of time at a refugee camp in Peshawar, Pakistan, while we were waiting to come over to the U.S. And then I grew up in northern Virginia, right around the Springfield, Burke area, and grew up in in basically a microcosm of Kabul in a sense. It it was almost as if we had never left Afghanistan because my upbringing was a very strict Sunni Muslim home. Mm -hmm. My mom was covered. All the other women in my family were covered. And then I'm trying to straddle these two very different cultures, this becoming a, a young American girl, but also having to live in this extremely conservative Sunni Muslim home. So it was a unique background, which eventually ended up serving me well as I became an intelligence officer and started focusing on Afghanistan to understand the culture, to grow up with the religion, to grow up with the language. Did you find it hard trying to navigate those two worlds as a child? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Every, every day, every day. It's, it's difficult growing up in the U S as an immigrant. It's, it's even, I would say a different level added on to it when you're a refugee Mm -hmm. because you are fleeing 
your home country due to fear. And so there is a deep desire to maintain some connection to your homeland, but while still trying to adapt and acclimate to this new home. And I think my parents struggled with it, obviously, a great deal more than I did and that my brother did, but it it was difficult. Do you ever think about what your life would have been like if you didn't leave Afghanistan? I sure do. Because my father, when I was 12, was working for UNESCO, which is the United Nations Education, Sciences, and Cultural Organization. And this was 1991. He was getting ready to go back to Afghanistan to help rebuild the education system. And he had arranged my marriage to a man who was 51. Whoa. Oh, wow. And so my older brother, thankfully, was an enlisted corpsman, which for those that might not be very familiar with the Navy, that's like a medic you've ever seen movies, you hear people shouting medic. So that's what my brother did in the Navy. He was stationed at Balboa Hospital in San Diego. And he immediately got on a plane when my father gave him a call and said, taking your sister back to Afghanistan, I'm marrying her off to some guy who's 51. He puts in a leave chit, he comes home and he's like, "Uh uh-uh, no, you're not. Wow. So, So my dad says, all right, well, I can't just leave her here with your mother. A man needs to be taking care of her. So my brother says, fine. Both her and my mom can come in, move in with me. And we went to, to San Diego and lived with my brother on his E3 salary, which does not go very far wow. anywhere in the world, but definitely not in Southern California. And my father was murdered on that trip. And so my brother legally adopted me with the help of uh, the Navy and also made my mom a part of the military system as a dependent. And so, yes, I think often about what my life would have been like if... I had, one, not left Afghanistan because I would have definitely been married off Uh when I was 12 years old. That would have happened because it's customary and very cultural. But I also think about what would have happened had my brother never found the Navy and at the age of 19 had the means and the resources and the wherewithal to think I could take care of my sister and my mom at this age. Most 19-year-olds couldn't do that. You know, they're they're, they're still in college or they're starting a job or whatever it might be. But he had he had a lot of support because yeah. of the Navy. So I'm very mm-hmm. grateful for that. It was the Navy that, that really helped empower him and realize I have the capability to really do this and really take care of these people that I love so much. Absolutely. Yeah. And he had some phenomenal mentors and advocates and champions who helped him with that entire process. And so, yes, it was the Navy that allowed this very young 19-year-old to, to, to feel and to think, I can do this. I can take care of two extra people wow. at this point in my life. Something that, again, I don't think many other people would, would be thinking at that age. Yeah, that is crazy. You ended up graduating from Penn State in 2001 and then commissioning as a surface warfare officer in the Navy. Um, would you say that it was your brother's influence that led you to join the Navy or was it was it other factors? 100 percent my, my brother's influence. But I will say I also felt legitimately like I wanted to give something back to our adopted home of, of the U.S. and wanting to serve in some way and give back because we, we grew up on WIC checks and food stamps and the mm-hmm the government had done a lot for us, even from my childhood and then into my teenage years of being a military dependent through my brother. And I did want to give back in some way. So absolutely, he was the the largest influencer. Mm-hmm. He helped me get into 
the ROTC program by helping me with, of course, everything that's necessary to get the paperwork in and and make sure that I felt ready for it. And uh, he also made me fundamentally a, a better officer because having mm-hmm. a brother who was enlisted, I had the benefit of understanding how important it was very early on to respect my enlisted leaders. Mm-hmm. And So what did you do as a SWO? So as a division officer, I was responsible for the executive department, which was difficult on a ship as large as the USS Essex. Uh, so we, you know, as an amphibious ship, you're bringing on a complement of Marines and you've got an entire Marine Expeditionary Unit coming on board. And then, of course, you also have, you know, the the more senior level, the fleet level flag officers coming on board. So it's, it's a lot of work just managing protocol mm-hmm. and the day to day and making sure everyone's getting the awards that they need and there was a part of me that wished I had gone into something like engineering or weapons. But the fascinating thing was, I think the universe had aligned some way because I knew that I eventually wanted to become an intelligence officer. And I got a lot of experience briefing senior people as, as an 01 and as an 02 that really helped prepare me for my career in the intel community. So you did eventually get the chance to transfer into the intelligence community um, can you speak a little bit? I know you can't say much, um, but in very general terms about what you did as a Navy intelligence officer. So as all intelligence officers do, we go and spend some time on a watch floor and really learn the, the craft, if you will. And then I eventually was chosen to do a deployment with the Joint Special Operations Command to the Joint Interagency Task Force in Bagram, Afghanistan. And this was in 2005. So as an all-source intelligence analyst, I was responsible for taking all of the various types of intel in Afghanistan and putting it together into written products and target packages for various elements to be able to go and hunt down the terrorists that were threatening our national security. And what did you find most surprising about your time in the intel community? how much special operations valued intelligence and how no one ever cared that I was a woman. They just cared that I was good at my job. That was very shocking for me because I'd come from this surface background where there were so few women on the ship. Mm -hmm. And once I, once I got to my ship and started spending more time in the wardroom, I realized everybody's watching me all the time (laughs) because I'm a woman and I'm one of so few women. And then being on deployment, strangely, everybody was so busy doing their own job and everybody's so focused on the mission and no one really cared what uniform you were in. They didn't care what gender you were. All they cared about was that you were really great at your job. So you're saying that in a sense there was more, um, I don't want to say sexism, but there was more awareness of your gender on the on the ship than there was in the special operations unit. Yes. And it was it was kind of that drive toward mission achievement, toward making sure you complete the goal that's so significant in the special operations community that kind of led toward that experience. Absolutely. Okay. So shifting gears a little bit toward talking about women in the military at large, we've done a few episodes on this podcast about the demographics of the military talked about how there are now a lot of women serving in the military in a variety of roles, even though the military remains predominantly male. 
But we haven't talked much about the history of women in the armed forces, how we went from a military that was all male to one that now has more female representation. We were wondering if you could talk a little bit about how women's roles in the military have evolved over time. Well, women have been fighting in America's wars since the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I always find it fascinating when people bring up more recent cases of women and valor and sacrifice and talking about the current battlefields of like Iraq or Afghanistan. And I talk about Deborah Sampson and Molly Pitcher and these folks, some of whom actually had pensions that were given to them because they were wounded in battle Mm -hmm. during the Revolutionary War. So I think women have always served. It's that their stories have largely remained untold. Mm -hmm. And over, of course, the more, I would say, recent history in the U.S., for me, in at least in my line of work, I really hearken back to, to World War II when I think that there was a, a drastic shift in the way women were utilized inside of our war department, if you will, back mm. then. So I, I think back to the OSS, which is the Office of Strategic Services, and that's the predecessor to both the CIA and modern day special operations. And About a fifth of the individuals that served in the OSS who ultimately helped defeat, you know, the the Nazi Nazi powers, they were women and they were doing all types of work, not just administrative. They were on the front lines as spies, as couriers, as intelligence operatives. And I think that really helped pave the way in a sense for a lot of what we're seeing women do today. And in terms of evolution, women have been serving on combat ships and in combat aviation since the 1990s. And this notion that women are just now serving in ground combat roles because the policy that excluded them was repealed back about four four or five years ago is not accurate. So women had been serving in ground combat roles throughout the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, if anything, the DOD, the Department of Defense, repealed the law because we already knew women were doing these jobs Mm -hmm. and and we needed to actually allow them to get credit for it and to get the tabs and to get the medals and to get the recognition for the fact that they had already been doing work in ground combat positions. So I'll go back to my earlier statement, which is women have always been doing this type of work. They just haven't had the right nomenclature or designator or patches on their sleeves that showed everyone else that they were filling these roles. But obviously, I am really happy to see that the laws and the policy are now finally catching up to the actual experiences that women have on the battlefield. So you were just talking about how there's a lot of debate, contemporary discussion about combat roles, opening combat roles to women. For people who are engaged in those kinds of policy debates, how should they think about or define combat roles versus non-combat roles? Well, I mean, the the way that our law defines it is if you are in a combat theater (laughs) and that's it. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where we as a military community and even a veterans community do ourselves a greater disservice by essentially trying to jockey for who is more of a military service member Mm -hmm. or who deserves more because they were 
actually in combat, as in taking direct fire or not. The, the bottom line of this issue is a lot of that is just timing and luck. I know plenty of people who have SEAL tridents on, that have special forces tabs on, that have ranger tabs on, that have a variety of other insignia on, who still to this day haven't deployed yet. Mm-hmm. But people look at them and automatically think that's a combat service member, that's a combat veteran. And we need to stop looking at ourselves this way and using that type of nomenclature. If you're signing up to serve, it's anyone's guess or gamble where you're going to end up. It's not like people have the opportunity, every single person has the opportunity to say, I want to go into combat. Now, obviously, if you are choosing to go into specialties inside of the military that are operational specialties, becoming an infantry person, becoming a SEAL, becoming a Green Beret, of course, you're saying that you want to go into combat. But I know plenty of intelligence officers that have been in combat. I know plenty of logisticians. I know plenty of medics. I know plenty of every other specialty that exists in the military that have ended up in those types of situations. And again, so much of it is just chance and luck. I'm curious if in your time looking at and working with these issues, you've noticed any contrast between civilians at large and their opinions on the roles of women in combat, however unuseful that term may be, uh, versus opinions from within the military itself? I would say that most civilians don't understand what the military does broadly. And so they definitely don't have a deep understanding of what it means to be in combat. And I know it's a large part of why you all started your podcast is because you recognize that there is a division, if you will, between the civilian world and the military, that there is a misunderstanding or a misperception of what the military does. So yes, I think that by and large, most people in the civilian world do not understand what the military does, and they definitely don't understand what women do in the military. In fact, I have numerous friends and colleagues that have told me throughout my military career and even my civilian career as well that people will not believe them when they say they have served in the military. There's some research by Dr. Morton Ender who works at West Point, and he's found the degree to which civilians are receptive to women in military roles depends on on the role that they're presented. So on average, civilians are okay with women serving aboard ships, and that's increased over time. Uh, They're a little less so okay with women in aviation roles, but that's also been increasing over time, their acceptance to that idea. But there still remains a lot of pushback within the civilian world about women in, quote, hand-to-hand combat roles. And I think that really illustrates just how much of that divide can drive those kinds of Uh, statistics and those kinds of observations is that civilians don't really know what that hand-to-hand combat role actually looks like. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not their fault that Mm -hmm. they don't know it. It's that there are very few accurate representations of what it means to be a military service member out there for the public. And I mean that across the board when it comes to media and entertainment whether it's newspaper articles, whether it's magazine articles, whether it's movies, television, there's very few accurate representations of that. And so 
naturally there are misconceptions. And in fact, there are plenty of people in the military who don't really understand what it means to Mm -hmm. be in combat because they have never served in those types of positions either. So a lot of your work now focuses on fostering sort of more inclusive leadership environments within the military and within the special operations community. So going back from the the beginning of your career all the way until now in your career as a consultant, um, how have you personally seen the military grow in this area? Like, what do you make of the progress that has been made in, in terms of inclusivity and fostering those kinds of environments? I think there has been a great deal of of progress, but I would like for it to happen a bit faster. <laughs> and I think about some of the individuals that have been instrumental, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you know, retired Admiral Michael Mullen, who I believe you've had on your show in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, this is someone who put a great deal of his social capital on the line to ensure that our gay and lesbian service members could serve honorably in the military. And now no one even talks about people being gay in the military. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come up as an issue. Now I'm I'm not saying that there aren't still challenges associated with it, but it is much less of a topic of discussion than it was seven or eight years ago. I think the same thing will happen when it comes to women filling previously closed combat positions. Just like you said, more and more people have become accustomed to women on ships, women in aviation. It's because it does take time for people to see or hear about individuals filling those roles and doing a really great job and then dispelling those myths. There's so many myths out there about what will happen when you make a team more inclusive. You know, what will happen? Will they be as effective? Will they be as lethal? Will they be able to get the job done? And the bottom line is the proof is out there that yes, the more inclusive your teams are, the more cognitive diversity you have, the less groupthink you have, the better job you're going to be able to do. And I would, I would say, I would challenge anyone on this. I think the military more than any other part of society needs to have a lot of people who think differently from each other. We are deployed all over the world. Our adversaries are diverse. They think very differently than we do. And we can't have teams of homogeneous people who all think alike. Is that the argument you would present to someone who might say, oh, I don't have any issue with women serving in the military, but I just think it makes more sense for teams to be similar and homogenous for reasons of unit cohesion? Absolutely. And there is a lot of research out there that shows it's not about social cohesion. Social cohesion does not predict success. It's actually about task cohesion. So when people are aligned on a mission, and by the way, there's really good leadership (laughs) that keeps people on track, then the organization will be successful. So if you have people who get along really well with each other and socially they have a sort of shorthand with each other, they can very easily come to a decision, I would tell you that is probably the scariest thing in the military. That's not a team that I want to be a part of. And it was that task cohesion that you saw in the special operations community who didn't care what you looked like just as long as you were getting the job done. That's right. Just now you mentioned it takes really great leadership to make that happen, to make those inclusive environments happen. 
what are some qualities or traits that you've seen in really great leaders during the course of your career? The best leaders that I have met have all been voracious readers. Leaders are readers. I will say that till the day that I die. <laughs> leaders are readers. If 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 someone that I'm working for doesn't have a very healthy Amazon account, then we're probably not going to get along. <laughs> so individuals who want to learn that always seek to to find other sources of information, I I think are key. People that are very open-minded, people that are willing to be contradicted, that actually welcome being challenged. If you're a secure leader, you're not worried about people confronting you and giving you another opinion or another way of looking at information. And then I think that the other piece of it is that person has to have a bit of empathy for others Mm -hmm. because not everyone is going to have the same lived experience that you do. And you need to understand that just because they don't have the same tabs on or the same insignia on doesn't mean that they don't have something to offer to the team. It's interesting that we're, we're kind of talking about diversity and inclusion, but the traits that you list aren't related. Like they're not a leader needs to be focused on diversity at all times or like fulfilling certain quotas. It's just that the person needs to be intellectually curious and emotionally aware. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Chicago, the windy city, the city of broad shoulders, the second city is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others who are working to address these issues. You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts. From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. This is Chicagoland. So several times on this podcast, we've discussed the role of the media, the role of Hollywood with TV and movies and how that informs citizens' perceptions and opinions about the military. How has the media traditionally portrayed women in the military? Not favorably is the bottom line and in an inaccurate way. So I think about the movies that I grew up with. So we had Courage Under Fire and we had G.I. Jane. And also G.I. Jane for a Navy SEAL just doesn't even make any sense yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a name. So I think about those movies and they were fiction. They're, they're works of fiction, but the almost the entirety of Courage Under Fire is not even about her. It's about all of these men trying to decide whether or not she should get this award. And then for G.I. Jane, it's a completely unrealistic portrayal of the military. So if that's what we have as women growing up, that's in stark contrast to now movies like, let's say, American Sniper. And a variety of other movies that show men as heroes. Mm-hmm. Now, they, they, they may be troubled, but ultimately they're seen as heroes. And I think about all of the TV shows, the TV show SEAL Team, you know, you see these, these individuals and there's almost, there's almost no representation of what women bring to the fight in these movies and in these, and in these TV shows. And so how 
how is your average citizen supposed to understand? Because if we think about the majority of Americans never went to Vietnam, how did they learn about Vietnam? Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket. Mm -hmm. These were the movies that they saw that gave them some kind of what was what was seen at that point, a realistic view into what war was like. What are people watching these days? There, there aren't very many movies and TV shows about people in the military anyway. And then the ones that are, they are about a portion of the society that is the half percent, the most elite, the most unattainable for the American population, the most unrelatable to the American population. So I do think Hollywood has a really long way to go. Instead of co-opting our narrative and making a lot of money off of the veterans community, they should look to actually bring some integrity into the way that they tell these stories. By, by showing these unrelatable and sometimes unrealistic stories in Hollywood, it has huge ramifications for the civil military divide because people aren't seeing what the military is actually like and seeing what service members actually look like and how they actually contribute. Absolutely. And they're definitely not seeing the diversity that's in the military either. And I mean, from not just the gender perspective, but the race perspective, the sexual orientation perspective, they're not seeing any of those represented broadly across across media and entertainment. And it does have huge ramifications for all of us because when we're when we're transitioning, as all of us will eventually into into the civilian world, it's really easy for a male who is getting out of the service, who has served in an elite organization to get picked up for an Ivy League school or a fantastic consulting job mm -hmm. at McKinsey or Deloitte or wherever else. It's much harder for women who are getting out of the service to get into these highly elite schools, these really fantastic places of employment because most people don't even believe that they served in the military. They don't understand the roles that they filled, and they also don't have a network that helps advocate for them to get into those positions. I'm wondering what you think we can do to help reshape those media narratives that are, that are driving these very significant ramifications in society. I fundamentally believe that we need more veterans in the media and entertainment space. We need more veterans who are acting as journalists, as photographers, as screenwriters, as producers. And we're seeing more and more of that happen. There's a fantastic organization based out in Los Angeles called Veterans in Media and Entertainment. And they're actively working to help ensure that more former service members are actively engaged in the development of content that's coming out of, of the media and entertainment space. And I think that's that's fundamental. We shouldn't allow other people to tell our story. Mm -hmm. We should be the ones that tell our story so that we can ensure it's accurate. I think one of the biggest, if not one of the only moments of public consciousness of women in special operations um, was the tragic death a few years ago of um, Senior Chief Shannon Kent. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, you know, there's many people out there who may have read about her who would have had no idea that there were women serving in special operations before um, before she died and that information was made public. 
Um, do you think that the military should be doing more to share the stories of, of women in those roles? Absolutely, because for every documentary that you see made about the military, the ones that often get the most visibility are the ones that have some support from the Department of Defense because they're allowing those camera crews and those producers to come in and really embed with these units. How many documentaries have you seen about women in the military that have had the Department of Defense's approval that, 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 have, been, that have been backed by the Department of Defense? I don't know of a single one. I, me neither. And so I do believe the Department of Defense could do more, should do more, because ultimately it's also about recruiting. We know that we do not have all of the types of people that we want in the U.S. military. And, and, and I mean from technologists to people who have a cyber background. If we want a true representative military that is pulling from the most talented people that the U.S. has to offer, then that means there are quite a few women who are not in our ranks right now that could be if they understood that there was a role for them and that they were welcomed. And it's not just going to be enough to make movies through Hollywood. We need the Department of Defense to take a very active role in this as well. So obviously there's still so much more that needs to be done with regard to all these issues that we've just discussed. I want to take a moment to talk about your work with Promote. What is the goal of Promote, what kinds of programs does it do, and what's the progress been so far with this organization? So we started Promote back in 2017, originally as a mentor matching program between junior women in special operations and senior men in special operations. We wanted a group of male allies and advocates and champions in special operations who could better advocate for women and help mentor them and, and help them along their career paths. And why we chose to do this is because this was already happening amongst the men. It was happening very naturally. Mm -hmm. And we knew that women would need or would be even in a better position to accelerate their careers if they had great mentorship. Everyone needs mentors. Everybody needs sponsors and advocates. And there's been a great deal written about this in the corporate space and the academic space, how important it is, especially for underrepresented groups to have strong allies in the workplace. So that's why we started Promote. It very quickly morphed into an organization that was being asked by members of the military to come in and do workshops on diversity, on inclusion, on how the, the unit or the command could ensure that it was a more inclusive place for everybody that was working there. And so over the last couple of years, we've done work from 05 level all the way up to three-star headquarters. We've done work for U.S. Army Recruiting Command. And it's been an amazing journey, one that we were not expecting at all to be on. And we're really, really proud of the work that we've done inside of these organizations. But we've also realized we need what we call an outside game. And that's helping to shape public perception about what women do in the military. And so a great deal of our time recently has been spent connecting to individuals in the media and entertainment landscape, working with them to help share more of these stories and so later on this year, we're going to be heading out to Hollywood and doing some really great engagements 
with various uh, high-level people across the media entertainment space, and also looking at doing more in the in the journalism space as well. So making sure that women's stories of service and sacrifice are being told through a variety of different mediums and eventually putting out a book as well on this topic. So earlier we were talking about leadership traits that make leaders better able to foster these sorts of inclusive environments. We wanted to talk a little bit about men specifically and men being good allies for women who are serving. And I think there's a there's probably a range out there. There's some men who are just really virulent sexists and they hate the idea or they resent the idea of women serving in the military. And then there's some who are already just extremely good, gifted allies because that's just how they are as people. And the majority of men kind of fall in the middle of that unwittingly or not. And so for those people who fall in the middle, who, who they're not, they're not against women in the military, um, but they're just not excellent allies either. What advice would you have for them? The very first thing that I would tell them to do is to order a book on Amazon called <laughs> Athena Rising, How and Why Men Mentor Women, published by Harvard Business Review, mm-hmm. written by Dr. Brad Johnson and Dr. Dave Smith, mm-hmm. both of whom are former Navy officers as well. So another plug for the Navy there. They wrote this book while they were at the Naval Academy as professors. And it's written not just for a military audience, but of course, there are several military stories in it. It is a step-by-step guidebook on how to be a great mentor and an ally for women. Bottom line. Mm -hmm. And it's a book written from men to men. And so they are very funny in the book, but very much calling out what men think and the myths that they have in their heads about how I'm not a woman. How could I possibly help a woman with her career path? And that's just simply not true. If you are a leader, you can help anyone else with their career path. Mm -hmm. And as a side note, for those individuals in the military that are vehemently opposed to women, I believe that great leaders should identify those people and work to remove them from the military. I don't believe that the military is a space where you should allow toxic leaders who don't believe or agree with the policies that have been dictated Mm -hmm. by our senior most leaders in government. You should not allow those people to stay in your organizations. And that's that's my call to action Mm -hmm. for the people that are in the military right now who who know that there are individuals in their ranks that are opposed to women serving, you need to figure out a way to get them out of the military. They don't belong in the military anymore. Mm-hmm. So final question. Uh, we're here at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. We have classmates who may one day be very influential in the policy sphere, but whose careers might not necessarily have anything to do with the military or with national security or with defense. What's one thing you want them to know about the military? That the military needs civilian oversight and that every single citizen in the U.S. has the power to help hold the military accountable because you have the right to vote. And so please exercise that. Please be educated. Educate yourself about what foreign policy and national security means. Even if you're not touching the military every day, you as a citizen of this country need to better understand your role in helping to shape 
the future of this country. And the military, we have become the easy button for everything that is wrong in this country. We are constantly being asked to deploy. And there are other ways in which we could be creating a better, more safer global society. And every single citizen has a role to play in that. Lila, thanks so much for coming on to thank you for your service today. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thank All right. you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Take, care, Take care. Thank you for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. If you're interested in learning more about some of the topics we just discussed, check out the Center for a New American Securities report, Dispelling the Myths of Women in the Special Operations Community, written by Lila and her colleague, Nicole Alexander. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You for Your Service is produced by Ashwarya Kumar and Tom Latanzio. Special thanks to Brianna Keeler and Tracy Logan. We record here at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Thank You for Your Service is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and does not necessarily represent the official positions of the Department of Defense or the U.S. government. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pareso. See you next time.